Welcome back to Owned and Operated. Today, we talk to James Camp, who is an expert in digital M&A transactions. He built and sold a digital strategy agency and is now focused on an e-commerce rollout. One of the highlights of this episode, I think, is when James gives us his breakdown on the money that can be made buying smaller businesses and how to add immediate value post-close. If you're interested in buying or rolling up digital brands, this episode is for you. Enjoy. If you listen to our show, you know that we can spend months sourcing businesses, talking with them, negotiating LOIs, conducting due diligence, all for a deal to fall through at the finish line. Microacquire solves that whole problem, whether you're buying or selling a business. As a seller, you're getting introduced to over 50,000 trusted buyers with total anonymity, As a buyer, you get to sort through profitable, vetted sellers and close in 30 days. We don't own any digital businesses yet, but over the next year, we're intending to grab a couple, and MicroRecryer is going to be our choice for a sourcing platform. Welcome back to Own and Operated. Today, we're super excited to have James Camp on with us. James, how about you give us a quick 60-second introduction to yourself? Sure. I'm like that classic serial entrepreneur who just is like impossible to employ, you know, people often say like, oh, you, I'm so impressed you chose entrepreneurship. The truth is like, I've applied to tons and tons and tons of jobs and fully have not gotten them. So this is sort of de facto who I am. And I'm a digital marketer by trade with a sort of a knack and love for m I'm really in love with transactions, but my core competencies lie in digital marketing. When I was pretty young, I sold a small ad network that felt like a super, super, super big win at 19. At 33, it's was in retrospect, a little baby win, but it felt like the biggest thing in the world. And then between the ages of about 20 and 32, I tried a thousand different things and totally failed at them and managed to put a pretty big win last year with the digital strategy consulting firm that I sold. And what I realized was that all the little wins I had had along the way were actually sort of buying things and sort of flipping them. And so I started really talking about website flipping. And now what I'm working on is... I guess people would call it a flip, but I'm working on an e-commerce rollup. So we're buying digitally native consumer packaged goods brands and putting them all into a hold code and using a shared services model to crush up X to sort of get rid of some costs. And then the, we will flip it, but that flip is hypothetically through a go public transaction or a private equity exit, right? So that's, that's who I am. That's great. And we know, I guess there's a lot to dive into there, but we know a couple guys that are working in a similar space right now. Bill D'Alessandro, Kelsey Layridge. Yep. So is that, I'm pretty familiar yeah, with Bill, Bill, that. Bill and I actually are in a WhatsApp group together that our friend Cody Sanchez has put together, but like very, who's a private equity fund manager. Bill and I are not super close, but very similar conceptually, right? Actually, the big, big, big behemoth in the space is a company called Thrasio. And Thrasio is, you know, I think they're doing like 1.6 billion in revenue this year, or maybe an EBITDA actually. I, I, don't, I don't know. I should know actually. It shows you how woefully unaware I am of a lot of my comps, which is like sort of a good and a bad thing because it means that like I don't sort of feel like I have to fit the mold of other people. But then I also am not aware of the competition in the way that I probably should be. But yeah, they're they're, they're big, big, big behemoth. There's some bigger players, private equity firms, family offices are really sort of like deploying capital in the space. You've seen actually in the past 12 months, multiples on digital properties, like sort of grow pretty drastically. Like when I first was doing this like 10 years ago, you could buy a website for like 2X SDE or EBITDA, you know, 2X the free cash flow essentially. 
SD is probably the best way to look at it because the rest are moving. And then for a long time, it was about 3X. And now it's like four to five. I actually had a conversation with somebody yesterday that offered me a 6X on the business that I just acquired. And I just got that business for not 6X recently. So it's pretty clear there's some great opportunities. Yeah. Why is it? I mean, purely from protection from COVID or what's the hope here that have brought multiples so high or maybe awareness of the space? I think it's a couple things. I think that we are looking at like an all ships rise on high tide scenario and your digital businesses are just inevitably going to grow. And so a lot of what I tweet about and talk about is more like content websites, but the space that I'm currently going at and the references that we're talking about are more e-commerce based, right? So we just see in terms of like the growth of that industry over the next five to 10 years, you know, becoming significantly bigger and COVID really, really accelerated that for all of us. So I think we have all ships rise on high tide. I think we have a little thing that we call quantitative easing that's happened recently. And so we just have injected a whole lot of money into the system. And a little thing, you know, we we could get into M2 money supply and stuff, but the reality is this, is that sadly during COVID, the people that were most deeply affected were the people that already didn't have money. And almost everyone I know that had money during COVID made a lot more money during COVID, right? And so that often has to do with investors, right? So as investors are looking for new asset classes, just supply and demand, right? There's a lot more demand coming online for digital businesses and a little less supply, right? I think that's going to even out in the long run. But right now we're looking at a pretty hot market where sort of consumer packaged goods brands are trading at more of like a, well, in the private markets are looking like a a 5X and SaaSes are more like the 10. Now those are sort of totally malleable numbers that change for each business, but that's like a, a pretty standard go at it. I've always, I think it's interesting. So I've like dove heavily into looking at digital businesses for the past couple of years. And I've never pulled the trigger mainly because I don't know what I don't know. So sure. I'm hoping that I, you know, get educated here, but I have always been way more attracted to the content side of things just because it seems so durable and it seems like hard to mess up if you don't know what you're doing. Whereas it seems like a lot of people who are actually working inside the space, such as yourself, Kelsey, Bill, you guys are going e-com. And obviously sure. you know something that I don't know, you're in it. So sure. why? Like what, what makes e-com the thing to roll up? So I'd say that if you were, so it's like weird how this unit economics change at scale, right? So I'd say that if you're looking at buying a 10 or $50,000 website, $100,000, anything under a million, and again, don't hold me to the fire with that number, but on the smaller scale, content websites make a lot of sense, Right. But on the large scale, content websites become incredibly tough to manage and the unit economics change because your margins get tougher because someone has to produce that content, right? So like if you're all of a sudden putting out 300 pieces of content a day, like your bustle media and you own all your red ventures and you own nerd wallet, you all these crazy things, like it is a, a grind, right? You have to be putting out tons of content. Whereas the thing about e-commerce is obviously the more you sell, the more complexities come into the space, but sort of you're selling widgets for most times, right? And so like, the great thing about selling widgets is that like, in fact, the more content I produce, the more it costs me with content. The more products I sell, the less those products cost me, right? So my cogs come down at scale with e-commerce, whereas actually my cogs don't only sort of track alongside growth with content. And so that's my perspective on it. I think if you want to, again, you know, even a couple million dollars is fine. There also are sort of, again, efficiencies to come from crushing up X, I think with rolling up consumer packaged goods brands, that don't necessarily come from rolling up content websites, you know, 
I mean, obviously there's some, we can look at sort of back office accounting and stuff, right? But at fulfillment, you know, things like that change with e-commerce. And then I think the other thing is that people look at e-commerce and say like, this is a single channel, right? Like I could also take this to retail. I can take this to brick and mortar. There's a lot of opportunity for growth. Whereas content websites sort of live in that home. They're beautiful. I love them. I, my, the last company I sold was built on a really big content website. I love content websites. I just think that there's more opportunity for roll up from the e-commerce side. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So maybe content, I'm looking at this from like my home, my lens of home services. So maybe content is more like if you're rolling them up, all you're doing is growing, but you never scale. Yeah. And the thing is like content, think of like a content website as like the bridge to someone like me, right? Because like I'm the end buyer of ads. The way that you make money from a content website is ads, right? So like I'm the actual end of the value chain by owning an e-commerce company, right? So if we're, so we're buying ads. So my point is like, we can make more money off that click than you can. And that's why I'm happy to pay you for that click for an ad on your website, right? So obviously like there's more margin for me to capture, which obviously margin allows for scale, right? Because we are spending money to scale here with e-commerce stores. They can get pretty complex as well. But I think, you know, if we're talking about the home services space, like there's a massive opportunity to capture more value by owning a content website that you are then the advertiser on the back end of, right? At one point I sold a website last year that was predicated on, on loan um, leads for the hard money lending space. Okay. And I didn't scale it to where I wanted. That's why I sold it, but I sold it to a hard money lender, right? So for me, when I'd spoken to them initially, I was like, listen, if I can scale this, you and I both know that we're talking about a broker, like a broker license for lending, right? Like I might as well just go buy, you know, whatever licenses needs to be there and go find two sales guys and send all the leads directly to myself and capture more of that value chain. But content websites are just the middle. They're not the end of the value, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And then, I mean, my next question was basically what you just said is why not smack them both together and get the best of both worlds. And well, people it. are. And, and I think that, you know, you'll see recently, you have to find like serendipitous, like synergistic, accretive deals, right? That makes sense in space. People are. And I think there's a major, you know, if you're in my world, people are talking about that all the time. But if you're not, people don't realize it's a, it's a common topic, right? So the hustle, which is like a newsletter, right? The hustle just sold to HubSpot. This is because HubSpot is looking for, I mean, they want to build, the hustle is already a profitable business on its own, right? But HubSpot wants to look at a, another channel for a customer acquisition, right? So this is starting to happen, right? Equinox, which is a gym, I think owns Furthermore, which is their magazine. You have Med Men, the cannabis dispensary they own. Ember, I think is the name of their magazine. Like there are clear opportunities for, you know, for brands to own media. And especially if the media entities sort of operate efficiently on their own, and they can also just be the, the easiest way for customer acquisition as well. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. I'm into that. When I was looking into the digital space, knowing that I don't know what I don't know, one of the big things that I was looking at was, okay, how do I come in, drop $100,000 on a website, but I don't know how to operate it, right? I know home service. I roll those up. But... I started looking into, there's like Onfolio and there's all these sort of website operators, but at that size of a deal, it doesn't even begin to make sense. Like the margins just aren't even there. So what do you recommend or how would someone dive in for their very first website? And maybe a hundred thousand is not even the number. Maybe the first website needs to be a million to make it even worth the time. Yeah. That really is like a 
it really depends on the individual completely, right? And how much time you can dedicate to it. What I always tell people is I'd rather you overpay for a good website than underpay for some deal. Because the reality is like, in terms of like asset classes, like cash on cash return, this is sort of ridiculous astronomical numbers that you'll see with websites, right? So like, oh no, you're going to get 20% cash on cash instead of 30 year one. I'd rather you get 20% and buy a website that sort of functions on its own, right? So this is another reason that I start when we compare content websites to e-commerce websites. Realistically, at about a, at a hundred thousand dollar website, you're more likely to find a content website that can sort of sit there on its own and breathe and live. Whereas a hundred thousand dollars in e-commerce, you're still fulfilling orders, you still have customers, right? You still have like these are things that become easy at scale because you're making so much money that you hire it all out. But if you are an owner operator on an e-commerce website at hundred k, you are an owner operator. Right. Versus like a an, an emphasis on the operator. Right. Like, and the margins aren't there to hire that out. Whereas a content website at hundred K like that could legitimately just sit there. Right. And bring you ad money. Right. It might just actually be ranking in Google for certain search terms and just sit there and bring you money. Now passive income is a total farce. I tell everyone that, right. Like unless you've got so much money that you just are like can throw millions of dollars at things that run on their own, right? But even then, passive income is kind of a farce. It's fake. It's not real. So even a content website at that at that level, you're going to want to be creating new content, building some backlinks. But that's sort of thing, the type of thing that anyone can learn to do. I could teach anyone to do that. So what's the right price? The right price is whatever you can afford, and then a, a little extra money. And it's because you do need to maintain it. And you might. This is dynamic. This is living. This is breathing. It's not static. And that's what I always tell people is like, I could find you a great website for $10,000. That's totally possible. The reality is though, is that I'd rather find a website that somebody else is willing to pay $9,000 for and you pay 10 because it's such a good solid deal that it lives on its own than find a website for 10 grand that somebody else is willing to pay 11 for. Does that make sense? That was like a weird sort of metaphor or, no, or way yeah. to explain it. No, I get that. I get that. So I think that the reality is I would recommend everyone. I'm like a lot of people in my position, and it took a long grind to get here, I really am that jack of all trades, master of none, right? Like, But I'm a competent media buyer. I'm a competent copywriter. I can build a website, but I would never do that myself at scale, right? Because I'm just not great at it. So what I tell people is to try and if you're going to buy a website that's under a couple hundred thousand dollars, let's say you're looking at the smaller like $10,000 range, but you want to at least be decent at some sort of skill set that is required to maintain that website. Now that might be that you just love social media and you're great at organically growing on social, or it might be that you can learn to write SEO friendly content and upload new blog posts every day, or maybe it's that you can build a newsletter. And so I try and teach people and show people how to do the basics of that. The real scalability comes from being good at something, looking at this business, looking at this website and saying like, Oh, there's a clear inefficiency here. I know how I can improve on that. Let me use my super specific skill set on that and grow it. And then the, the, the Delta, you know, the alpha that you get comes from that exit multiple, right? That's why I talk about flipping instead of just buying and holding. Cause it just sounds so much sexier because you're going to, whatever alpha, whatever gain you have with your work gets captured on the sale as a massive multiple, as opposed to holding it forever. So do you tend to, we'll use flipping. I don't think, sure. I, I don't think anybody here likes that word, but we'll use flipping. So do you tend to exit or do you have a buy and hold portfolio that you stick with? What's the Yeah, so for me, I mean, I've made by far the most money in my life by flipping, right? And we all talk about how much we hate that term, but by, by exiting. 
And the most money I've ever made really comes from building from zero and then exiting, right? Because that's where all the value gets captured, right? So I tell people that all the time. You know, the thing about, I often write about these website, I run like a case, right? As you call it in B-School, we're running a case. There's not websites I've bought. I'm often to breaking down exactly how I would do something, right? And it's just sort of a framework of how to look at it because the reality is that anyone that I teach how to flip websites really should be really happy with like getting 20 or 30% on their money in the first year, right? That should, you should be to the moon with getting 30% of your money. Now, of course, can I break down a hypothetical example where you make 300%? Absolutely, right? Those happen, right? But that's not what I ever advocate for people to do. So for me, like what I'm working on now is probably the best example. Like buy and hold, not in the way that we're like a private equity firm, like a multifamily like syndicator and saying like, we're always going to have depreciation in the tax benefits and you're just getting dividends. We're holding to a die. That's not the space I'm in yet. That space normally comes from having a lot more money and saying like, I need to allocate capital in a permanent way. But the exit for me here is more like from what I'm working on now is more like a three to five year plan. Right. I would tell people that the flip can't be really done before 12 months because you want to prove to the new buyer that you, that the changes that you've made are actually there because everyone talks about TTM, which are trailing 12, right? And so the trailing 12 are really going to be relevant if you've been around for 12 yeah, months. 12, yeah. So yes, I can't think of, there are no today, to answer your question, there are, except for the business I just bought, there are no passive income websites that I hold on my books today. That does not exist in, in my life. So when you're talking about flipping these websites, diminishing returns and things like that, you know, you're talking about a minimum year to flip them how do you determine how far you're going to go? You know, at what point is it not worth to make additional changes to get a better multiple on the sale? What does that look like when you're kind of determining how far you're willing to take something? Sure. That's a great question. I think part of it, you know, this, like I said, it's dynamic and it's changes, right? So sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll work on something and be like, Oh, this is done. And the reality is that it's like a longer way, a, a much longer way to go. So in terms of like how to decide what the effort is worth, one reason I like to try and think bigger is because if we take a $10 million business to make the numbers easy, right? $10 million in revenue, let's say, and I increase and I increase the revenue by 1%, right? Like we've now just increased this revenue by, you know, by a hundred thousand dollars, right? So like that's, that's pretty massive. So the, the effort can be a lot less with that leverage. I was part of a transaction last year that totally fell apart, totally failed, but with a group of people that were trying to buy a brick and mortar chain, we'll leave it as that, from a very large private equity firm. And it was doing $163 million in, in revenue, losing $2 million on that 163, right? So everyone, and this is why the PE firm wants to get rid of it, right? Because they that's not the type of asset they want to hold in their books. But everyone's like, but well, what do you do to fix that? I mean, candidly, at that size, you're calling United Healthcare and you're saying, hey, we want to change everyone's healthcare plan. <laughs> And you're and you're getting rid of a, a C-suite or two, right? It's not it's not impossible, right? Like I don't have to go in and like get my hands dirty fixing it. But with like a ten thousand dollar website, all you can do is go in and get your hands dirty fixing it, right? So like to answer your question, like there's no set rule for me, but it, it's like, do I see the buttons and levers that are easily pushed and pulled? And if they're still there, you can go for it, right? But if if it feels like you're really getting your hands dirty, that like dollar for for a minute, it's not worth it to you. And I think the answer is to give it to someone that it is worth it to. Okay. I can get behind that. Have you ran into those situations? Like you said, you had, you know, one of those deals go south where you didn't have an option. You had to jump in and, and get your hands dirty just to get out. 
unscathed. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. I mean, you know, part of my last business that we sold last year, and again, it was a strategy consulting firm, but it had a portfolio of websites and it. it was a whole things company it had a portfolio of websites in it. That's actually how we got all of our deal flow for clients, right? Was we just like had one of the largest financial news websites in a certain niche in the world. Everyone came to it and was like, Hey, we need help with X. And we would just be like, okay, we can do that for you. Right. And we didn't plan on that at all, but you know, that was towards the end there. Yeah. I mean, fully, fully, fully us just working really hard on it. Right. And that was actually that the first website was one in there was one that we, when I came on board was a Wix website where it was getting like 20,000 hits a month, which really should not be on Wix if you're doing anything like that. Right. And fully went in ourselves, fully changed everything got a new domain name, redirected it, redirected the old website domain name, fully did everything ourselves just because the margins weren't there to pay people, right? <laughs> that's that's really the tough part of this. And that's why I say think as big as possible with this. Now get your hands dirty, buy a $5,000 website, buy a $10,000 website, learn how to do this, right? But like, then as soon as you can think bigger, think bigger, right? So many times I've had to fix things myself. And that's why I'm an advocate for at least I'm a jack of all trades. You know, like at least I know hypothetically, if this fails, I can get in there and I understand the mechanics of it in a way that I would not with a service, like a home services business, right? Like I just like couldn't do that at all. We've historically done deals in home service that are like pretty small, like basically tucks. And we're doing a couple larger ones this year, larger for us. So one's just under 2 million and one's just under one. And I'm just like piggybacking on the 163 million a year chain. Even in the $2 million deal, we're able to come in and we're going to be able to cut healthcare by 80%. Which is like, <laughs> so that resonated with you specifically. Oh, I, mean, right? I caught on to that specifically. And I was like, I'm buying this deal. And like day one, day one, yeah. I'm making an extra $80,000. And I get that a $2 million deal in the grand scheme of things is not big, but that was thinking yeah. that was thinking bigger for us. So that felt like there's just, yeah, there's more you can do on bigger deals. And, th- and that's where I always get stuck on the website thing is I'm like, yeah, I want to get into the space. I want to dive in. I want to understand it. I want to, I want to just do it. But then I always end up looking at like $300,000 websites and I'm like, I don't fucking know how to code. <laughs> well, this is how I, I'll be straight up with you, right? I, last year I was like, I had some money. I was like, I'm going to become a real estate developer. I know a ton of real estate developers, right? Like all the way from people that work for, you know, like Related and Tish Inspire, like the biggest developers on the planet. Some of my good friends, some of my best friends are like smaller and in the developing world, like everyone's like $20 million. That's big. It's not right. And as a developer, it's small. So one of my best friends is just buying, just won a bid on like a 50,000 square foot warehouse. They're turning it at 96 apartments, right? Point is, I was like, I can do this because I, I thought I could underwrite it. I'd listen to bigger pockets. I've like, you know, I get this. You're this an expert easy. at this point. I get it. I read a book. Well, I got this, right? And so I bought a property that we tore down to the studs, right? And so this is a great, I think, parallel for websites and probably the same thing for, for, for you thinking about this. I tore that property down the studs. Cost me an extra $60,000 more than I meant to do into it. And I will only get out with the profit with like four grand because the market is so ridiculously hot right now. And it's like, well, I think we're in an asset bubble. And in that regard, like, screw it. I should just keep this debt. And like, let's let this ass, let's let this bubble fly to the moon, baby. Because, you know, the, I'll, owe, I'll owe nothing on it. You know, on the, the LTV, the loan to that is it's nothing as it keeps going up, right? But if I had bought a good house, right? Or I just had to change the paint and maybe change some cabinets, right? Like, 
I would have done fine on this property. In fact, it would have been great capital allocation, right? But the thing is, I was like, no, nah, this is easy. Let me rip this house down to the stud. So when, when you look at websites, it's like, I could show you a great $300,000 website that you could just change the paint on, but don't expect to double your money, right? Like that's, that's the real thing here. Like expect to make, if you made 5% on any investment in six months, right? Like, and then you could capture more of that on the exit of it, right? I mean, as a dividend, 5%, you know, people would be like, to the moon in any sort of like actual real money management sort of perspective, asset class. But with websites, I, it's almost a problem that I show these examples with these massive, massive flips, you know, because I think that it disillusions people to the reality that like you need to be happy with, with something a bit smaller and a bit, and a bit safer. But you could, listen, I'm quite sure. And by the way, the $163 million deal, that was, I was a little baby going along for the ride. I don't want to pretend that that's like, I buy big companies like that. I don't, I don't, you know what I mean? That's sort of like me being a tiny kid on a team of, of old men <laughs> and it fell through anyway. So why does it matter? I bet that was a cool experience though, honestly, like just being able oh. to look at it that much multi-unit. I mean, that would have been sweet to be able to dive into that at whatever level you were able to dive into it. Uh, well, and you start to realize that like having that digital, I think there's a huge opportunity. Like Nick Huber talks about this all the time with like, like sweaty startup, right? It's like paper ledgers, Great. Any business that uses a paper ledger clearly has inefficiencies. You know, and I would say like even in the home services industry, right? Like I bet all these guys that are like owner operators don't have any email flows, right? Like I would promise like anyone who has any product that someone's likely to come back for again, I could probably set up some email campaigns and increase their LTV, right? Increase their lifetime value of that customer, right? Because like they just don't have any any retention models, right? There's no way to keep a customer coming back until they just need you last, last second. But yeah, I mean, anyone can learn like to do the high up level stuff. It's the nitty gritty that gets complex. And I can teach how to do, you buy a $10,000 website again, just like you and me with the healthcare stuff. Yeah. We can talk about like changing your hosting costs. Right. But it's not going to make a difference. Right. Yeah. We can change the business by 0.5% by reducing OPEX by $10. Cool. You know, but the problem is, is that for most people, that's not really worth it to them. It's not a right mover. Now, if you're more on the buy and hold, like we spoke about, like it doesn't matter really as much, right? If you're going to hold this for six years, but again, even then you better realize it's not just buying it and walking away from it for six years and disappearing, right? And it's at least buying and maintaining, right? So, yeah. All right. Well, you said you had some active stuff that you just got into. What do you feel comfortable sharing? You said there was a new deal. You said you had a roll up. Yeah. I mean, I'll keep it. I mean, I'll break most of it down except for the exact complex deal terms and and the exact business, but you know, we bought, so basically we sort of went at this as like a creative, I'm a very interested in creative deal structure. I don't have a background in finance, right? I've just been around a bit for a long time, had some mentors who are investment bankers and some guys who work in PE sort of look after me. And so knowing that I wanted to do a roll up, like I said, going from zero to one is where you fail most of the time. Right. So once you get to one, once you get to, to some success, that's where we can find these inefficiencies that people don't recognize. Right. And, and for me, I'm not even looking for businesses where I find real inefficiencies on their own. It's not like let's find a business and fix it. No, I want to buy businesses that are already good. Right. And the only efficiencies we could create is by combining them with a shared services model. Right. I want to grow them, obviously, and make them bigger, but it's not that there's someone has done a bad job and we're trying to fix a problem they did. No, no, someone's done a great job. Right. And the reality is that if we take, if we have a parent company that has a management services agreement, right, essentially like, and a back office all there that we can sort of bring all the costs in house and, and, and crush up X. So first business 
consumer packaged goods brand in like the silver tech space. So sort of for elderly people, again, you know, we're talking about, you know, why multiples are growing. It's because online e-commerce is going to grow as an industry, but I also, you know, the boomer generation, which is 70 million people, we're going to have the largest generation of all time be over the age of 65 in the next five years. Right. So I'm pretty bullish on silver tech if we're looking at the next 10 to 20 year time span. Right. Again, as an all ships rise in high tide sort of component, right? Without me doing anything, there are going to be more customers that exist for these products tomorrow than there are today. And so that's, I'm a sort of firm believer in that concept. And I'm that, sure if you're really in the home way of progress. I mean, that's like putting yourself in the way of progress. That's well, great. it's the same thing with home services stuff, right? I mean, you have all these people. What I've seen is like, you have all these people who built businesses with their fucking hands. They made money. They got their kids a good education. Now their kid doesn't want to go run their home services business and they want to fucking retire. Right. Oh, yeah. So there's like, a, there's a pretty massive opportunity in that space. I'm sure that's something that you guys look at. I mean, right? that's, that's the thesis for us is there's, you know, I can throw a rock and hit a company doing two to $3 million in sales with 12 people that doesn't know how to run the business of running a business. And we use the same model that you just described for websites so we have a holding company with a separately siloed management company to do shared services, management agreements down. It, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's the whole thing, Here's the like, so, and I'll get, I'll get more into the deal in a second because I, I, I realized I sort of left that. But like, I'm really not that creative or not that smart, right? Like my feeling is like, let's just take, there's enough business to go around that if we take models that other people have done to the end of all time, then we can do them. Now, the problem is that a lot of this information does not become democratized, right? A lot of this information stays with these powers that be with these, with these investment bankers and private equity firms. And like, we can talk about earnest and clawbacks and unwind provisions. And these are just really complex, complicated ways of talking about pretty simple concepts. Right. And so people do this, I think as part of a way of sounding esoteric and making it so that like the average Joe thinks like that's impossible. This is finance. Like I can, I'll never do that. Right. I'll sometimes break down like share issuances to friends of mine. They're like, wait a second. So you literally just call your lawyer and you say that you want to issue shares and they make more shares. I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's literally how a share issuance works. Right. And so like now if we're talking about public markets, we talk about market cap, as long as people don't recognize any dilution, you literally just created more value in the company. Right. So, but so to go back to my deal, so performers are always worth the, the paper they're written on. Right. So like really realistically, we're tracking for about 3 million this year. I would perform out about 5 million this year. I think we'll do 5 million. If we look at sort of what we're doing to do this month, it's more like 3 million. I think we'll hit a million in EBITDA on this business, which is like pretty nice. Starts to be, from my experience, 2 million in EBITDA starts to be the range that like really gets other people salivating, that gets sort of family offices and private equity salivating. And the reason- As an exit. As an exit. Sorry. Yeah. As an exit point, right? Like, Is this the roll up, just to clarify, is this you rolling up? Or so this one is, one is our first acquisition in the rollup. So the okay. parent company is called, is called Common Commerce. And the first brand that we just acquired should do a million in EBITDA. Okay. Year. All right. Yeah. Which is a nice little business, right? It, obviously, in the scheme of business, it's not like big business. It's still a, a very small business. But it's what's nice about those numbers is like it fully functions on its own, right? So, so it means I didn't buy myself a job, right? I bought myself a business. It has a CEO, right? It's like I sit in on calls and I'm on Slack channels with them all day and stuff, and, but I don't impart my will on anything, right? The, the old owner actually, without getting into complexities, the old owner came on board, 
right? Along with it, right? So he runs that business. He's done a, he's a great entrepreneur. I call him my partner now. He's my partner because he has equity in parent co, right? So like we did like a creative deal structure that got him happiness today with long-term upside tomorrow, right? Instead of just a straight so is that, And that's just like a holdback that he's going to exit again when you hope to exit out of this structure in three to five yeah, years. Yeah. So the way, so the, the way you sort that he's will do well is that he has equity in parent co, right? So as opposed to him having equity in this, in the sub, right? And so like the reality is if you want to screw people, you can just leave them equity in their own sub and they'll probably find illiquidity in that to the end of all time, right? Because when I sell my parent co, you better hope that, or you better hope we sell off that one sub, that one subsidiary. But if we don't, and I take my parent co public, I've actually watched this happen. So like, let's say common commerce went public and you own equity in one of our private subsidiaries, Great. Wouldn't matter because I'd find liquidity in my public in my common stock of the of the parent co, and you'd still be holding a liquid paper in your private subsidiary that there was no market for, right? Like unless someone comes and buys out that one stuff. So now he's a partner at the parent company with me. And the reason that we did this as an accretive, interesting deal structure up front, where he came on board was because I wanted to get it done quickly. I wanted to incentivize him. He also has, and I won't get into the details. But we, to protect him, I created an unwind provision where if I don't hit certain KPIs, he gets to unwind this whole transaction and walk away from me. And who's the only one that's out? Me. <laughs> you know, I'm the one who spent all, like all these legal fees and everything, right? And so he gets to back that out if he wants to. So he has an unwind provision. I mean, what, what do you have to, like, what has to not work? How do you protect yourself from an unnecessary unwind? So the way that I look at it about getting deals done is like, trying to sounds corny, but putting myself in the counterparty shoes and giving them an asymmetric upside. So he has this old owner has named it. I'm the only one that can lose in this scenario. Now I'm confident in what I can do. I know we're not going to lose. And you know, but the reality is I'm the only one who's unprotected here. I really, really am the only one who's unprotected. So to answer your question, maybe I'm the sucker, right? You know, maybe that when you look around the room, maybe I'm the idiot, right? But I'm, the way that we got it done was I made it so that for him, I either sort of pull off this private equity magic and if go public exit or, or an exit part of it is either without getting into all the details, like we can have a go public transaction. We can find a certain valuation. He can choose to not unwind it, right? Like we can just improve his business enough that he doesn't want to unwind it and pretty candidly, like we're going to grow this business anyway. So he's in a much better situation anyway, but I don't really have too many protections, you know, but that's sort of the way you, I'm a risk junkie, you know, and I, and I think that like we're going to build a nine figure enterprise here and sort of, if part of getting that linchpin in required me taking some risk capital of my own and, and, and putting up in a way that may never come home, then, then, then so be it. But the most important part of this was like, I don't have to be so creative moving forward because I'm going to do 5 million in revenue this year, right? So the rest of it falls into place 10 times more easily, right? You just need that base, right? Like you want to go roll up companies, well, it's about 10 times easier if you're already going to do $5 million, right? Because I can go, if I want to do debt, I can just service the debt with the business I already have. And I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to encumber that sub with debt, right? But the difference is that now I get access to like corporate non-recourse debt, right? Like I can take on debt for my parent company that is not, that is not you know, guaranteed by me personally. And I talk to debt funds. I talk to MES debt lenders, right? It just becomes very different. It opens up the world. And also when Let's, it comes to me, sorry, I kind of want to dive into that a little bit further. So there's a gap for the listener, not for, not for James here, but there's a gap, right? So there's a gap between SBA and what you're talking about, which is like lower middle banking. Sure. And you're filling it 
I mean, I'd love to just talk about how you're how you're filling that because I think a lot of our I know we're just starting to use SBA, so we haven't done that in the past. We've done a bunch of like creative financing and seller financing and just cash deals. But we're we're going to do two SBA deals this year and probably one more next year, and then that'll be it. And then sure. and then we have like a little bit to go before we become eligible for sort of that lower middle banking. So how are you filling that gap and how are you financing these deals? So I would love to take an SBA loan. I would love to. I can't qualify for an SBA loan with this business. And so without getting into my personal finances, there's complexities that come with the SBA where they say, if you have over X amount of liquid net assets, we will not give you an SBA loan. They do that because the idea is to give for small businesses, right? And it doesn't matter whether you've got restricted securities or blank or blah, as long as you have over X, they say, no, you don't qualify for that. I'd probably fit just into the range in which it's possible for me to still get it, right? SBA, that's fucking beautiful, excuse my language. It's really, you know, it's it's a great deal. Like the terms are, when I first spoke to a MES debt lender recently, they were like, what kind of terms are you looking for? And I was like, I'm looking for SBA debt, you know, but from you and for more money. And they're like, well, it's just not, it's not going to happen, right? And so the way I sort of, again, the way that I superseded that was just getting in enough revenue in the door up front that, that I can borrow against it, right? Like that was really the key to it. So if I go and I say, hey, we're going to do 500 grand this year, then the SBA is the path, right? Like that's just a, you're talking about probably 7A loans, right? An SBA 7A, so an acquisition financing loan, Yeah, right? and are you talking about, well, there's cash flow lending, but then there's also something else. I don't remember what it's called, but it's used in websites a lot. Oh, what's that called? So for me, it was part of my like thinking much bigger thing. I would love, you know, part of it is also because net worth, but then also the structure in which an SBA loan works is that anyone over X amount of equity in the entity that is taking that debt has to personally guarantee that debt. And that would have required me to have other people that for, to come along on this journey with me. We're not interested in person, personally guaranteeing debt that I wanted to take on. Right. So there's just weird complexities of why I couldn't fit into it, but I'm a huge advocate of SBA loans, like a huge, huge advocate of SBA loans. Like the, the terms are great. They're very comfortable. I think like you'll end up getting like 7% on like a five-year note. It's pretty normal, something like that, right? Like Mesdet is a little more expensive than that, candidly, right? Like I'm talking more like 11%, 10%, things like that, you know, up to 15, depending on it. But what's nice, again, is you get into this sort of, again, this corporate non-recourse debt stuff, right? And so the debt's just not on me. And then if you get way bigger, someone's writing you a bond, right? It's just a whole different, it's just a whole different world. And I'm not there yet, right? But like you're going in an investment bank, is underwriting a bond issuance for you and selling it to their clients for, as an investable securitized product. But yeah, for me, the big skip was just getting something big enough in the door that a debt fund was like, cool, yeah, 100%, right? It doesn't matter whether I own 0.1% or 100% of it, this entity on its own functions on its own and is big enough to take on the debt that we'll give for it, if that makes sense. And then you can get some of the other conversations I've had are with like PE firms that are more like independent sponsor-based right? So like, we're trying to figure out how to do the creative deal structure. We're basically a sponsor fund or independent sponsors. They'll buy a business and they'll put an entrepreneur inside of it and give them a small slice of equity, but you can get creative with like MSAs, right? So that MSA doesn't have to just exist within your own hold co. Like we could buy, and I don't want to get too weird in the, in the weeds here. Right. But like I could buy 51% of a business today. Right. Because all I care, all I care about is the consolidated financials, consolidated financials, right? I want it to all float to the top and I have to own over 50% of that to happen. Then we could have it so that a private equity firm or family office owns the other 49%, right? But through like a management services agreement, I could capture most of that revenue, 
right? Or they could catch most of that revenue, right? Like, so there's weird games that get played and I've watched them happen where it's like, oh, you're an entrepreneur and I want to recognize your revenue today. Cool. I'll give you X amount of stock and blank dollars for 51% of your company, right? I'm going to give you an MSA though, in which you get to, you get to keep a hundred percent of the profit of your company, right? But who cares, right? Because now from a top level, I get to, I get to capture that revenue, right? And that happens a lot in the public markets world, much more than private equity, because private equity clearly everyone wants mm-hmm. to have the money come out. But in, in public markets, really, it's very often like a revenue game, right? And so people will say, like, let me give you X for your business, for 51% of your business today, allows me to capture the revenue of my parent company. I'll give you a two-year two MSA where you keep running your company, you get to keep all the money, but you also have equity in, in parent, and I need an option agreement at the end to purchase it so that I can, this MSA can go away. Right. If I ever need to, when I raise X more dollars, I'll buy you out of the rest of your management services agreement and we'll take that internally. Sorry. That was a bit of a tangent. I don't know how I got no, to I that. Mean, th- that was good. I think that was, that was good. The whole debt side of all of this is fascinating. And I think that people are starting to unlock it in you know, a variety of ways. Like we're lucky because SBA is still eligible for our company, which is yeah. great. And the size of deals, it's perfect. Obviously, yeah, I think SBA is up to five million, right? That's the max of an SBA seven A loan. I think it's five I th- million. I think so. I've heard of people that go higher, but maybe that's just through partnerships or something like that. Like I know people who have eight figures in SBA. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, you got to remember when you think of it this way: like the SBA is just the Small Business Administration, right? So the loan is actually coming from the bank, right? The SBA is just guaranteeing that loan, right? So I, I'm sure you can have an eight figure in SBA back debt. But I do think that 7A loans, which are acquisition financing, I believe, I, I don't, don't hold me to this, I'm not a banker. I do think you're capped at 5 million. I do, I do think that. But I know people that are getting PPP loans are more than 5 million bucks, you know? That's for sure. And that's, that's SBA debt as well, right? So, but yeah, I mean, I think what fascinates me is transactions and how to get creative with transactions. This is the big difference between value creation and value extraction, right? Mm-hmm. Like value creation is normally an entrepreneur thing. Value extraction is normally like a fund thing, right? Like PE fund manager or, you know, or somebody like me, I'm trying to do both, like actually buy businesses that I can, I can create value within. But then we also sort of look like there's a clear arbitrage that happens, right? At a certain size, right? So for me, same thing with you guys, if you guys are doing $500 million in, let's just use HVAC as the example, right? In HVAC companies, like I promise you there's PE firms that would go pay you a higher multiple for that and then we could get for a singular company on its own. Oh yeah. Right? And so same thing with me here too, right? It's like, so what happens is you have these businesses, I'll give you Thrasio as an example, because I only own one wholly owned subsidiary right now in my roll-up. So for functioning, it's not a roll-up yet, right? It's just, it's just <laughs> but, but that is the thesis of it, right? And actually I tell people this all the time, that a lot of this is like stories and thesis, right? Like, so how do I go get debt? Because I'm telling people that my plan is to keep acquiring businesses, right? Now, if I wanted to go take... $10 million of debt for my business that's going to do a million in EBITDA right now. No one would give it to me. No one would give it to me. I'd be like, for what? What are you going to use it for? Like, I, that doesn't make sense. But will you give me $10 million to buy more businesses? Sure. Right? Like, that makes sense to them. Right? Yeah. So a lot of this is storytelling. I'm just going to piggyback off that for a second. We had yeah. a very similar experience with some of our vendors. So we've had a few negotiations over the past few months as we started to prepare either our balance sheet or our org chart or whatever to bring on, you know, new tucks. And the conversations went nowhere for the first like week. And then they were like, why are you trying to do this? And, and yeah. then we said, hey, because I need my balance sheet to look really good so I can take on $5 million of loans. 
to go buy sure. more companies, which will then grow your work with it. Anyways, it immediately changed the conversation. <laughs> well, it's like, listen, you want to you go raise money? Go get an LOI, right? I mean, because it's, like, it's very clear, right? Why do I need $100 million? Because I got 10 companies under LOI at $10 million to pop, right? And if I can execute all these LOIs at the same time, then we can create a pretty valuable enterprise that can go into the SPAC. Because in the public markets, our company will trade at a 30x price to sales. In the private markets, we trade at a 6x EBITDA. Right. Like, sure. People give me money for that all day. Right. Like do you have a, do you have a SPAC lined up that's interested in your transaction and you got 10 companies. Like you want to talk about really creative ways to make millions and millions of dollars. Go get 10 businesses under LOI right now. Just letters of intent that agree to sell to you if you can pull off what you want to pull off. Right. And then go find someone to finance it. Right. You don't have to put up any money there. They don't want to give you money for one $500,000 business, but they'll give you $10 million for a roll up. Cool. Excellent. This is just a, a deck angular reverse merger into my new parent code, right? Mm-hmm. Like I've been involved with a triangular reverse merger. So I just have seen how this is possible, but I'm sure this can happen at scale, right? Like there's just no question that that's totally possible. And by the way, that person giving you that money will probably give it to you at a higher multiple than the LOIs you've got these businesses under LOI for, right? That's the, that's the R you create. In fact, you know, again, this is, this is just what PE firms do, right? I'm not saying this is all of these of private equity, but like I'm not reinventing the wheel here, right? Like this yeah, is this just is the like, game. This is the game, but they're doing it with billions of dollars only, right? So it's like I think that for me, I try and my thesis is to find businesses that are too small for private equity, right? That are too small for family offices to hold their books. They're too small for go public transactions, but that I believe I can grow them to be that size, right? And that all of them together will just become a beautiful machine, right? So it's like for me. It's just an internship, essentially. I have an internship with a SPAC sponsor. We'll call it that, right? One, a good friend of mine is a SPAC sponsor. When I sold my business last year, I was like, hey, man, how do I get involved in this? I never worked in investment <laughs> banking. I never worked in private equity. He's like, okay, well, I'll let you know if I need your help. But a month ago, he called me. He's like, you still want to be involved? I was like, 100%. So I do low-level analyst work from the mid like night, right? Like, I'm just like helping with S1s. I'm helping full, like, they're listing a new SPAC, like, pull all these sources for attorneys to use because you have to have, like, the right sources legally in S1 for all these things. It doesn't matter. Point is, is like, I know, now I know I've got these people in my corner that have, like, that can have $300 million sitting in, a, in an account ready for an acquisition. Not that my deal is going to go into that, right? But like, it's about just like sort of lining up the chess pieces. Mm-hmm. And then it's a bit of a dance, but can you pull off that dance at the same time? Because if you can, you can capture a couple million dollars, right? In like pretty levered, levered ways with like zero risk capital. I could go create a thousand dollar LOI template, go get 10 companies under LOI right now, right? And then go raise the money simultaneously or go to a PE firm and family office and say, hey, if I have 10 businesses, do you want to buy them, right? That together they all function, they'll have 10 million in EBITDA, right? And we can crush this up X. And they say, sure, here's your LOI for that. And then you just come and get them all. T- I mean, obviously, I'm oversimplifying this. <laughs> you know, no, you no. get them all together once and you capture that VIG, right? Like, I'm not, a, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a broker. I can't really sell securities for a commission. But, like, I can sure take finder's fees, right? There's lots of ways to do this, right? So, I don't know. That's my spiel. I don't know how no, I got I'm, into I'm, it. I mean, I'm into it. I always had the buy and hold mentality. I think it's built into home services. Home services tend to be you know, founder operator type thing. So I always had the buy and hold mentality. But once you know about the game, once you know, oh, with multiple expansion, I can buy this company for a million dollars and sell it for much, much more <laughs> just by me <maybe> smacking another <laughs> oh, one or two yeah. in there. Like, oh, well, I did I'll not know that. <laughs> these, 
like really randomly, and I'd rather not say the exact example, but be quite quite clear with private. The brand that we just bought, I think we'll do a million in EBITDA this year. And I think we'll do 2 million in EBITDA next year. And candidly, I'm not sure that we'll ever try and grow it beyond that because I think our margins will start to get crushed, right? But like, here's the other thing is like, buy and hold, cool. Like, what's my backup plan? If, if in five years I have a business that does 20 million in EBITDA, I'll very happily hold this for the rest of my life and go collect my dividends, right? Like, cry me a river, right? No one's going to no one's gonna cry, cry about that. The funny thing about exiting is, it's only easy to exit a business that somebody else wants to buy and hold forever, right? That's the, the reality is like someone's holding that. No one's planning on, well, I guess there are, no, there are distressed PE shops that buy things up and rip them apart and spread them apart. But in general- It's not the 80s anymore. That doesn't exist as much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In general, people buy a business because they want to hold it and collect the money that's coming off of it, right? But we, the business we just bought, you know, I had a conversation yesterday with someone that initially was like, would you take a 6X multiple for it? And I was like, I would, but not today because we're based on our turn on 12. It's not what I needed to be to take that multiple. And they're like, well, would you take a 10X multiple for it? You know, and so like you start to get in these conversations, but really interestingly is that we have a public comp, right? It's not a penny stock. It's a $2.2 billion company trading on the NYSE that trades at a 44X price to sales, right? So like in terms of arbitrage, I'm not saying that this company is big enough to be public, right? But in terms of if we could get it to be public and create a reasonable story of why it should be comped out to that other company that sells basically the exact same product as us, right? Like that's an absurd arbitrage, right? That's an absurd, absurd arbitrage. The timeline would be the thing that would concern me though, because it seems like, again, we're in this period right now where rising tide raises all boats. We have- sure ton of stimmy checks going out. We've got all this money just sort of being showered out. And the the go public at 44 times price to sales, sure. that seems like relevant to today. 100%. But what does that feel like in a year? <laughs> or, so or screw, that, screw, screw that. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the math. Well, this is, yeah, you're right. This has been, we are in part of the longest bull run that the public markets have ever seen in the history of all time, right? And, and kudos to it. And unless I'm pretty long America, right? So well, my, my point wasn't like poo-pooing on the strategy. It was more like, sure. is the game to do this as fast as humanly possible in order to maximize that? Or like, you can always go public and get great prices. Yeah, no, like, no, so, so the reality is what I tell people, and I've had conversations with investment banker friends of mine about this, that we've talked about if I can get if we can hit 2 million in EBITDA with this first business, they think that they could do a small IPO for me as the purpose of it for acquisitions, right? To say like, to prove we bought this business at X, we can get businesses to 2 million in EBITDA. We want to buy other businesses like that, right? IPOs and, you know, S1, it's all just story time, right? Like, does this fit? Like, are you going to be able to use this money to grow, right? And so acquisition financing is probably the easiest way to get because they're clear trying to buy cash flows of businesses. But to answer your question, it's not about doing it as fast as possible. What I tell people is that 44X is just absurd and ridiculous, and I would never even try and compound to that. But if right now we're going to do a million in EBITDA, and I think that we're worth 10 million as a, as a 10X on EBITDA, right? That like, I think that we could raise it at 10X on EBITDA saying, look at our comps trading at a 44X price of sales. That is egregious and absurd, and I would never ask you for that. But if we all agree that institutional investors and retailers are happy to buy into that equity at that price, then why not buy into us at a 10x on EBITDA, right? Like this is just a much more reasonable valuation. I use it as a way to say like, that's insane. That's absurd. Screw that. But do you like that investment? Because I can give it to you at significantly, significantly more reasonable valuations. And to your point, right? Like the go public is just a, 
I don't want to get into like the complexities of that because going public is about a hundred times easier than people think it is. Like people think of it as like this really complex two-year process of getting onto the NASDAQ, like sure. But essentially you're filing a form 10 with the SEC and you're getting a broker dealer to file a form 211 for you, right? So basically you're registering your shares with the SEC. You have to have over 35 shareholders, I believe. And then you're getting a BD investment bank, right? A broker dealer to file a form 211, which is basically to say that they're being a market maker. There is somebody that makes markets for you that will buy and sell your securities at any time. What you'll see is the crappy market makers put a bid out at thousands of cents and they'll put an offer out at hundred bucks a share, right? Because yeah, of course they'll sell you a share at a hundred bucks if it's, hits this magical number. And of course they'll buy shares from you at 10,000th of a cent, right? Because they know you're intrinsically worth more than that. So that's just like the crappy market making that exists there. But to get back to it is that there's always an R between private and public markets, essentially, right? Now, sometimes it goes backwards. Like you'll see people do buyouts and take companies private, right? Like that, that does happen as well. But I think that going from private to public is a clear arbitrage and really it's just a function of finding liquidity and and finding capital at a higher valuation right like otherwise institutions would give you money privately right like i hate to say this but most of the public transactions are a way for founders to get liquid right or early investors to get liquid or a last ditch resort to raise capital because the reality is no one's willing to give you capital that valuation unless you have liquidity to you right and that retailers are less sophisticated than institutions and we're are happy to pay much higher multiples than, than institutional investors are and normally. And even institutions that invest publicly are very often doing like hedge funds are buying shares in open markets. But like, I mean, the whole world of pipe transactions are, you know, like that's a transaction which I'm buying shares below the VWAP, right? Below the last traded price. So, you know, that's these pipes, private investments in the public equities, me buying unregistered blocks of stock, 30% below market today and then registering them later and selling them to the market. But there's always an ARB there. Whether it's a 44X ARB, I can't promise you that. But there's there's always an ARB there, right? So you pay for liquidity, right? People are willing to pay for liquidity. You get a higher valuation for liquidity. So public markets should always have a higher valuation than private markets. Yeah. Uh, give or take. Yeah, that's interesting. So what else are you working on now? The big project is this roll-up. What else do you have going yeah. On? So, I mean, candidly, like, I'm not trying to plug it, but like, I'm trying to launch a course, you know, I think that for me on website flipping, sorry, I said, I love a good course. I think courses are like the coolest business model ever. The problem is, man, is that, like people pick the exciting stuff. Like I had a big ish exit for myself last year. Right. Like, and like, but I really want to stress to people, like I'm trying to launch a course partially because I don't take money out of my company. Right. So everyone's like, Oh, if you're so rich, like, well, just still a course, like, cause I'm not that rich, right? I've done well, but like, I'm not, like, I'm not Jeff Bezos. It's just like, you know, and also like, I like making money. I like teaching and I like doing this stuff, right? Like, so like if you're in the interim, I can go make $10,000 a month selling my course and actually help a bunch of people how to learn how to do this. And by the way, maybe one day they don't want to do it. Maybe you buy my course and you say, I don't want to do this. How do I get involved? And oh, maybe I'm raising capital. Who knows, right? Like in terms of the sales funnel process here, right? Like the people that have real money, I'd much rather you spend 500 bucks on a course. You see that this is totally possible, but recognize that this is very difficult because none of my course is going to be about like, oh, this is so easy, right? This is really complex stuff to do, but you want to deploy 100K in capital. Well, cool. Maybe I can help you do that, right? I'm not soliciting anyone here, but I make it abundantly clear, right? But like, like I, it's just something I thought about in the this background. This is not investment well. advice. <laughs> yeah, there's not, it's not, yeah, there's, there's not an offering register with the SEC. Yeah, yeah. But so I'm launching a course, A, because I really believe in my heart of hearts that like 
everything I've talked about, I, listen, I'm a college dropout, went to five high schools, I'm not well-educated. I don't want to pretend I'm some guru, but clearly I've got a decent functioning understanding of M&A and of, and of public markets and go public transactions, right? And so I generally believe that what happens is you get all these pretentious guys who get involved in finance and they get in their job and they sit on Wall Street and they keep it esoteric and they keep it complex and it sounds stupid, but because they want to stay rich, right? And in capitalism, for you to be rich, people have to be poor. That's just the truth, right? That's just literally how the system works, right? But I generally believe that I can show people and teach people. Like, I can't teach you how to make $100 million, man. Like, good luck. That's magic, right? And it's really just, are you good at that? Like, can I show people how to make 20 or 30% on an asset class? They're like, it's pretty safely. Yeah, 100% I can do that. So that's what I want to show people how to do. And part of that is money and part of that's ego. Like, I just want to be able to show people like, yeah, you can do this too. It's not rock science, right? It's just that, like, I've taken the time to, to learn these complex terms and learn this stuff. So I'm launching a course. I have my newsletter. I love what's tweeting. What's the exact subject matter of the course? Is it on buying and flipping websites? Is it on? 100%. It's on buying and flipping websites, mostly content-based websites, because that's what I really feel like I can show people how to do pretty safely. The thing is, you know, the e-commerce stuff is a little bit more complex. Maybe maybe I'll do like a program afterwards someday for people. But yeah, it's mostly content websites. There's some stuff on e-commerce and lead gen. But then, yeah, it's sort of how do I finish that? So that can be sort of my passive income, right? Nice. Again, I, again, that's not real. The passive right? income that took hundreds of hours to come up with. It took hundreds of hours to get to and probably will still require work once it happens because I promise you once you sell a thousand copies of something, you probably get a hundred emails a day if people ask me questions, right? So, but that's sort of a little bit more cash flow, whereas common commerce, like, yes, eventually I'll take a salary from that, right? But not right now. Right. I want to have a couple businesses in there before I take a salary from it. Because candidly, right now, there's no justification for me to take a salary from it. Right. Like, except for some consulting here and there, helping them grow. But it has a CEO. That business runs on its own. So until I can crush up X with a shared services model, why should I get paid? Mm-hmm. Right. And really, honestly, like, I generally believe that making money is not that difficult. But what I generally believe is ruins most people is their greed quotient. Right. I think that most people go in, most people in my position are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go make $100 million. Like, maybe I'll make $100 million, but that's not the plan here. The plan is to, by the end of three to five years, to own like 10% of a $100 to $200 million enterprise that can actually get a real exit. Right. And so, like, some people are going to say, that's a lot of fucking money. Of course it is. Right. But it's also like me walking away with $10 or $20 million from, from five years of work. Like that's great, but that's not my greed quotient being astronomical. That's me saying I want to incentivize all the other founders, all my shareholders, that I want to own a small slice of something big. And if I own a small slice of something big, it's much easier to get to that place. So answer your question, I'm working on the course that's about to launch. I'll keep doing my, my, my consulting here or there. But in general, what I'd like to get to in the next six months is I sell some courses, nothing crazy. You know, there'll be a qualification. If you can't afford it, I don't want to sell it to you. I got zero interest in people buying this course to think that I'm selling them some magic pill on how to make a million dollars. Sounds like a nightmare. You know, I'd much rather sell a $500 course to someone that's got 5,000 bucks, you know what I mean? Or 10,000 bucks and like has a shot at this. Oddly enough, I'm always blown away at how many people actually have money. You're like, Hey, I've got a hundred thousand dollars. How do I do this? And so, and I'm like, always like, Whoa, you, you guys all have money like this. This is crazy. You know, <laughs> original Bitcoin holders. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But so that, that's, that's it. Like, I just want to sell the course. And I really want to make common commerce happen. I really want to build this sort of like 
Thrasio, I keep comparing to. Thrasio only buys FBA, FBA businesses, so fulfilled by Amazon businesses. I actually don't. I'm, I'm looking at like native, like digitally native, like Shopify stores, essentially, right? I'm more like my, the beauty one that I look at is the Hut Group in London. The Hut Group is on the LSE. They went public at a six billion pound market cap. They rolled up some beauty brands in the consumer package good space online and they bought some hotels and spas. And they tell you that it's because that's a great way for them to push their product. I can tell you, I used to own a piece of a, like not big beauty brand, but a brand that did like 12 million a year. Like spas are not how we made $12 million a year selling, selling beauty products. Right. It was from Ulta beauty mostly, right. Like Ulta and like Nordstrom and big, big brick and mortars. And then we did a couple million in e-commerce, but my point in saying this, I really think that's a game they're playing where they're just buying these massive, these big asset heavy things that they keep on their balance sheet and sort of keep them ingrained at these valuations and are really easy to get debt against. Right. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think it's that they really think they're going to sell an extra billion dollars of skin cream through their three brick and mortar spas. I think that it's super, super, super easy to get debt against hotels and spas. And that if you're taking on corporate debt from the parent level, that you get to sort of allocate that debt in whatever way you see fit. You get to refinance your own debt. You get to do all these creative things that sort of only happen on the bigger scale here, right? This is why, and not to go into this rant so much, but this is why people worry about EBITDA, right? Versus like free cash flow. It's because EBITDA is something that like bigger firms get to play with. Like, let's say I take on all this debt. I end up doing 100 million next year, but I've got 30 million in debt from a debt fund that lended to me at 14%, right? Cool. Well, a big PE firm might have their own debt firm, their own debt fund that they can refinance. They can buy my business and refinance the debt tomorrow at 6%, right? Now the EBITDA just changed by 5% of the interest portion of that, right? Like, which at scale makes a big difference, right? So, and then they do crazy things like redomiciling businesses. I'm not big enough to do that to you, but like maybe you're Apple and you want to have Apple Ireland and you pay a licensing fee to Apple Ireland for every product you sell in the U.S., and that way your US company doesn't make a ton of money, right? And so then you pay a tax in a country that is much lower. But anyway, my feeling is there are all these cool tricks and tools. And I think I can teach the basics of it to people with a course. And at the same time, sell my sawdust by trying to build a big e-commerce rollup. So that's, those are yeah, the two. That's sweet. Two that sounds like a good course. I'm yeah, man. Here's the reality. Anyone can learn the best practices. And the best practices are what's going to get you 10 or 20% gains, 30% gains, right? Like the magic of like a 3X or a 5X flip in a year, that's, did you buy a great website? Did you find great opportunities that are missing? But like anyone can go, I can show anyone how to dig through Flippa and Empire Flippers and Quietlight, all these brokerages and find websites that just have not done a good job with their best practices and change their margins on the business by 10 or 20%, make that money, and then also on the flip, capture a multiple of that margin, right? So, so th- those are that's where I'm focusing my time. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And where can people find you if they want to connect? I'm like cripplingly addicted to Twitter. So Twitter, <laughs> probably, you know, like, and I'll tell you that it's like a double-edged sword. Obviously, you know, get to connect with fantastic people. But I've also have some people in my life that are from the more old school finance world. They're like, what, what are you doing? Here, man? Like, what, you know, like that's one reason I can't ever go guru-y because I don't want to ruin my life, right? But they can find me on Twitter. So that's Jameson Camp or James on Camp. I tweet basically all about making money on the internet and buying and selling websites. And I have a newsletter where I 
try to take hypothetical websites and basically run a case on them. What I would do, how I'd improve it, and sort of what the numbers I would expect to get from that. And that's NanoFlips. And that's just NanoFlips.com, N-A-N-O-F-L-I-P-S.com. And yeah, Twitter and NanoFlips are the two places I like to hang out the most. NanoFlips is dope. We, we read that here, and it's pretty cool. Like, What's tough is like, it's just being consistent with the content, right? It's like, it's just really tough because these flips take me like hours to do. And the reality is there's no, I mean, I mean, hours to break down hypothetically and write out and there's no payday for that. And I'm incredibly busy, right? So it just becomes complex, but I promise anyone that signs up, I'm, you know, going to go, there's about five or six issues in total that get drip fed out. I really will make a concerted effort to try and do this every single week. Yeah. It's just, I mean, you've got devoted fans here on the, here on the podcast. Rand and I, yeah, enjoy it quite a bit. Cool, man. Awesome. That makes me happy. I appreciate that, man. Thank you very much. All right, cool. Well, thanks for listening. As we interview James Camp, check out NanoFlips, check him out on Twitter, and definitely check out his course when it comes out. When do you think it'll be coming out? So there was a pre-sale. I mean, I'm hoping the end of next week. I mean, to be honest, it's one of those things where it's like every day I'm like, oh my God, this isn't good enough. This is so bad. But it's like 95% done. I'm just like trying to make it the most pretty button up thing possible. So probably first week of May, it'll be out. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, cool. Thanks, guys.